Hey, it's Andrew, the director of Literary Arts. Here at Literary Arts, we rely on our community, people like you, for support. To help make this podcast and all our programming possible, give today. Literary-arts.org forward slash donate. Welcome to the Archive Project. I'm Amanda Bullock, Director of Public Programs at Literary Arts, in for Andrew Proctor. The Archive Project is a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers for more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. Today, we have a special episode. Most of the time, we're sharing a recording of an event we hosted, but this episode was recorded specifically and exclusively for today's show. May is Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month, and we're delighted to celebrate with this feast of a conversation centered on two great cookbooks that came out last year, Mooncakes and Milk Bread, Sweet and Savory Recipes Inspired by Chinese Bakeries by Christina Cho, and Mr. Jews in Chinatown, Recipes and Stories from the Birthplace of Chinese American Food by Chef Brandon Ju and writer Tian Lin Ho. We got this trio of cookbook authors together with writer and editor Chris Ying to talk about their books and their experiences eating and cooking Chinese American food. They touch on, in their books and also in this conversation, the importance of Chinatowns not only to Chinese Americans, but to non-Chinese Americans. There are vibrant Chinatowns in pretty much every major city in the world, sometimes multiple, as in San Francisco, where all four are based. The group talks about the Chinatowns they knew growing up, and they remember the iconic dishes of their upbringing, and the inventiveness of combining ingredients available locally with traditional Chinese flavors in dishes like the St. Paul sandwich, which honestly sounds delicious, stay tuned to learn more, and about how to ensure recipes and techniques are passed down to future generations. All of these motivations led to the creation of their two cookbooks, Mr. Jews in Chinatown and Mooncakes and Milk Bread, which contain not only recipes, but celebrate the history of Chinatowns and Chinese bakeries, respectively, and of Chinese American cooking. Food and cooking and eating are so much about nostalgia and memory, but also about connection, not only back in time, but connecting people with each other. Chinatowns have been a vital part of creating that connection through food, and it's really a treat to be able to offer this conversation celebrating Chinese-American cuisine. My name is Chris Ying. I'm the former editor-in-chief of Lucky Peach magazine and now the head of creative for Major Domo Media, but I'm here today, I think, because I'm a Chinese guy who knows something about cooking and eating, and we're talking about two very special cookbooks and their authors and the Asian-American experiences that shaped those books and those people. I'm joined by Christina Cho, the mastermind behind the blog and Instagram page, Eat Cho Food. She's a first-generation Chinese-American, a self-taught cook and baker, and the author of Mooncakes and Milk Bread. Our other two guests today are my friends from way back, Brandon Ju and Tian Lin Ho, who are the co-authors of Mr. Jews in Chinatown, a narrative cookbook about Brandon's restaurant, Mr. Jews, and the way in which San Francisco's Chinatown shaped American flavors. Brandon's been cooking in the Bay Area for 100 years with some of the best <laughs> chefs on earth, including his grandmother, who inspired him to take up the mantle of Chinese cooking. And Tianlun, you do everything. You've written about food, history, and science. You work the line in kitchens, and you work full-time as an attorney now. <laughs> so let's, uh, let's, let's start with this. 
you know, we're, we're all, we're all Asian Americans. We all have very different backgrounds. We all have different upbringings. I think we have different meanings of, of what that Asian American experience is, but let's start with some commonalities, Christina and Brandon, a lot of your books and a lot of your early family life revolved around Chinatown. So I want to start in Chinatown and I want to, I want to hear about your two experiences, but maybe Tianlun, can you start us off by sort of giving me a little bit about what Chinatown is? Explain this phenomenon for us. Chinatown, it was the first stop in a new land. So SF Chinatown, San Francisco Chinatown, where Mr. Jews is, that was one of the first first ones. And it was built in the 1800s by Chinese who came from the southern part of China, four counties specifically. It's a really tiny corner of Guangdong. And most of them came because they had to, or they were recruited as workers and promised, you know, a better life. So they came out and um, built the first Chinatown here, but also all around the world. So that's why there are Chinatowns in Mexico City and Chicago, Vancouver, even Melbourne. You know, most of the time Chinatown was the support center because you'd come here and you didn't know anyone. So you couldn't get a loan and you couldn't get a job, but it became gradually like a lifeline to home because it was also a place where you could get supplies and ingredients and things that tasted familiar or people who talked the same as you spoke the same dialect. And because of violence and anti-Chinese laws, a lot of Chinatowns were burned down and rebuilt many times. So Chinatown was also a haven. I mean, Chinatown is Chinatown is a global phenomenon. There's not any yes. major city, every major city I've ever been to, there's been a Chinatown. Mexico City, Sydney, Australia, San Francisco, and Cleveland, you have a Chinatown. Yes. And they're all different, and yet they all sort of share this commonality of, I don't want to say a taste of home, but it's it's some it's somewhere where you can like it's recognizably Chinese in food and culture. Christina, what was your Chinatown growing up and how much time did you spend there? So I grew up in Cleveland, Chinatown, which a lot of people seem to be shocked that there is a Chinatown in Cleveland. Uh, and I would consider it a pretty legit Chinatown. Uh, my grandparents lived there. Um, pretty much from when they immigrated from Hong Kong in the late 60s, and they lived there for 50 years. Um, and it was kind of like this like safe haven and where we would get dim sum. That's what I think of when I think of Cleveland Chinatown. We would go to dim sum like every Sunday. It had all the grocery stores where my mom was able to get like Chinese sausage and different Asian vegetables. Um, and I felt like growing up, the suburb I grew up in was like pretty white. And I felt like for a very long time, I had this like dichotomy of balancing, um, embracing my Asian-ness in Chinatown, and then also leaning into like assimilating when I was back in the suburbs. Um, so for me, Chinatown always felt like a place where I didn't really have to try too hard to just be myself and be myself with my family. Mm -hmm. Brandon, you are, you are in San Francisco's Chinatown every day, but you spent a lot of time growing up there too. I did. Yeah. You know, my, my experience with, with Chinatown at, at a young age was more really like holding my grandma's hand and following her on her journey of getting everything we needed to cook Sunday night's meal. Um, and that was a combination of like places that were in, you know, her house was in, in the inner Richmond. And so there was grocery stores around there, but we, we always would have to take, you know, the bus all the way to Chinatown because there's only specific things that you can get there. And once you get off the bus, 
in Chinatown, you know, the, the energy, the, the, the amount of um, just how dense it was, there, there was immediate energy that, that, um, you know, you can pick up as even at, at a young age, like you have to hold on a little bit tighter because the streets are a little bit more packed and like so many things are happening all around you, above you, on every side of you, on, you know, on the ground, like the, things are just happening. And um, so it was always really exciting to come to Chinatown after the, the, the more maybe subtle grocery store experiences of the other neighborhoods. But, you know, that was really the, where you can really see everything in front of you too. You know, the, so much of like other like American grocery stores or things are like packaged and, 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 and put away, you know, a certain way. And this is like, this is like about like really the quality of things are, are, are about like, finding them yourself in a way like there, mm-hmm. there's there's very large piles of of vegetables everywhere and 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 so there's there's no instruction you know the people that are going to kind of get you what you want are the people that i think know the streets the the best um know know really the the, the people that are actually working there um and then it's just about like picking things up and like examining things for yourself and i mm-hmm. think that's you know, just watching my grandma do that on a regular basis really had influenced me on like how, how we curate and, and find certain things um, for our, for our menu. Mm-hmm. It's, it's really interesting. You know, you, you say <laughs> for all of us, you know, one or two, or I think Brandon, maybe three generations removed from, mm-hmm. you know, the, the immigrants who first came to this country, going to Chinatown for all of us was still kind of this visit to a different place. It, it felt yeah. as different to us as it would to sort of any other person in America, I think. Um, Tianlin, did you grow up going, you grew up in Columbus, Ohio. Did you grow up going to Chinatown? I did. And Cleveland, Ohio's Chinatown was one of our stops. Um, and we would, every year we'd take a special trip across the border to Canada, to Windsor, Ontario, um, where there was amazing um, Cantonese food, mostly um, just right over the border from Detroit. And that was just, you know, a really special sojourn. My parents actually met in the middle of, of rural Iowa, Kansas, because they all were in search of soybeans to make tofu with. That was, that was so hard to find. And they would all make this like sojourn to St. Louis to buy tofu or to buy the beans they needed to make it. So Chinatown, and it's definitely a place that we all like made special trips to. If you didn't live near one, you would make sure you got to one at some point each year. Mm-hmm. I feel like all my family vacations, the final destination was to go to Chinatown <laughs> <laughs> just to pick up a specific ingredient every year. Um, this is interesting because like we're, we're in this kind of different, different phase here. Both, both of your books are sort of bringing a broader audience into the fold of, of what we experienced growing up of, of, you know, Christina, the, the, the bakeries and, and cafe culture that you knew both from Chinatowns in Hong Kong, um, Brandon, <laughs> Mr. Jews. Uh, where where your restaurant is was formerly two other restaurants where you know your family had celebrated many occasions. You know we're talking about ourselves being brought to Chinatown by our parents, but but Chinatown was also this gateway, this entry point for other Americans who were not Chinese to experience some of these things. Especially, I think maybe San Francisco in like the '60s and '70s when when it was the when when your restaurant Brandon was the Four C's. Like mm-hmm. this was a cultural hub, right? Yeah. I mean, it was, it was really a, the, those golden years of 
the neighborhood had transformed at that point. Um, you know, when we say that the neighborhood was welcoming, it, it, it wasn't always that way, right? Like the neighborhood also had some, some history of really like, this is the confines of the immigrant um, Chinese that couldn't go outside of these walls and like had to use the neighborhood as a way of protecting themselves um, by staying together. And, and, and like, look, I mean, some of the things that the, the, that they were they were fighting as far as like racism and prejudices and you know obviously like we're we're still seeing th- those things even today but it, I think it was even more um, out in the open um, back then and there were, um, there were Chinatowns getting burned down <laughs> back yeah. then I mean like serious serious xenophobia and racism and also barring of getting jobs outside of Chinatown. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, so so I think even just the amount of perseverance that like had gone into just the the community um, survival. I think the heyday, like the 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 kind of the maybe um, some of what was was learned through using food as a vessel to 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 actually like break some of these um, these walls down. I, I think the heyday is, is actually some of these, these, these restaurants that had been now frequented enough by outside communities, um, were, were thriving and, and they found a way of like this, like dining and, and, and entertainment that, that I think Chinatown had become this place to, to be entertained by food and, and shows and nightlife and kind of, you know, the, the glitter and some of the glam of, of San Francisco was Chinatown. Mm-hmm. Like this was the, 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 these restaurants, the, the, where this place where your restaurant is now was the sort of place to be seen and, and see and be seen, right? This is, this is where the San Francisco kind of movers and shakers all congregated. And yet, you know, it's against this background of what you're talking about, xenophobia and, and everything else. Do you all feel nostalgia for this for an older version of chinatown the kind that you you grew up with what what do you how do you see chinatown that you grew up with what with what it is today i think for me personally cleveland chinatown hasn't had that kind of like glitzy transformation that maybe san francisco chinatown has and for me whenever i go home um, i think i feel nostalgic for the discovery of this Chinatown, like back in the day, like not a lot of people outside of the Chinese or Asian community really knew about Chinatown. And now it's been rebranded as like Asia town. And it has, Mm. um, I think a bunch of different events and ways for people to kind of like learn about it. But for me, I kind of miss like the heyday of like going there with my grandparents and seeing all of like the other kind of like Chinese children that I knew growing up and their grandparents and families that are, Kind of centralized in Chinatown, and I don't really see that as much um, when I go back. When I go back now, so that's I think that's the only thing I feel nostalgic for. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I feel nostalgic for for some of the places that I remember going to. I mean, some of the the end of the trip with my grandma would be going to like restaurants, and you know, because it was early in the morning, it, it would be like Juk and Yotiao and and like these. But these places were like jam-packed you know mm-hmm. and um and the place that i'm i'm thinking of um was was at gold mountain that um that building and um and that and that restaurant is, is no longer there you know and and then you, you look at like empress of china 
um, it, it's now transformed, but, but that restaurant as a legacy business is, 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 is now gone. Um, and, and then you go down the line and even like, you know, four C's like the restaurant that we, we ended up taking over, um, they were done, you know, like they, they were 50 years, um, of running the business and they were, they were exhausted. I can't even imagine running Mr. Juice for 50 years. I like, please like <laughs> close me out before like 20 years, because I can't even imagine 50 years. You know, I think seeing the condition of Chinatown for, for, for up for me that there, there was like nostalgia, but it kind of transformed it in a way of like feeling even more like just responsible to do something about like these, these generational uh, legendary um, restaurants that, that were, you know, vacant. So I think, um, you know, and, and, and that kind of coupled with like also my pride of Chinese cuisine um, and it was, it was a very much like a, a very much growing pride of, of the nostalgia that I had and, and seeing what people in America had, you know, generally felt about Chinese cuisine. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I think knowing that there was just way more to the cuisine than w- what a lot of people get exposed to, it really motivated me to, to like get on a path of like, understanding more of it myself mm-hmm. i love i love that i love that restaurant named gold mountain and, and you know it's, it's you so know the far. chinese nickname for for san francisco is is gold mountain or old gold mountain i just love this idea of like this huge hilly city that had so much promise right and that that's that it has lasted the entirety of the time that chinese people have lived in san francisco the, the promise of this place and and i think that one of the reasons why you know, we were talking about this nostalgia and some of these places have kind of like the, the place of China, how Chinatown has changed over the years because Chinese culture and, and Chinatown, the idea of it has expanded so far outside of these kind of, um, you know, Tianlin talked about, like you couldn't leave these borders of the city. They weren't just Chinatowns. Like you couldn't just fluidly walk in between. You couldn't work outside of them. But now, you know, there are cities that are deeply Asian up and down the West coast, you know, from here in San Francisco up to, you know, Seattle and Portland and, and you go to Vancouver and, you know, mm-hmm. uh, Tianlin mentioned Canada, like some of these Toronto has seven Chinatowns, you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's amazing. And in, in Los Angeles, you have the San Gabriel Valley and, and Christina, you spent a lot of time living. I don't know if you live there still, but you lived in San Francisco's other Chinatown. Yeah, exactly. And I, I used to live in inner Richmond. So I guess where your Brandon, where your grandma uh, lived and yeah, I, I always I, I would hear people consider it like the second or even third Chinatown, even though there's a ton of other kind of Chinese sections in San Francisco. Um, but I I felt like living in inner Richmond was the first time I ever experienced like walking out the door, walking down Clement Street and just like seeing people that looked like me in a normal setting, like just going more about, in America. kind Yeah. Of like- yeah. Compared to like like I went to college in Ohio as well. And so like up until like my early twenties, like I was like in Ohio. And then when I moved to San Francisco and lived in inner Richmond, I'm like, there's people that look like me. I hear Cantonese, the the language that sounds familiar to me, just naturally, normally existing. Yeah. And intermingled with other things, other people, other things, other, yeah. Yeah. Other cuisine, other, yeah. Yeah. And I, and I, it's not like I had like an aha moment, like the moment I, I moved there, but I felt like I lived there for six years and I think it just like allowed me to kind of embrace like both sides of 
I guess like my Asian Americanness, like the Asian and American, um, just to like naturally exist as. Who I am. Well, some <laughs> some will say like I mean like you know it, Chinese cuisine even in San Francisco inside Richmond and even inside Sunset, you know some of that is actually like you know that's part of also the condition of of Chinatown, right? Like Chinatown, a, a lot of the, the mom and pops and a lot of also like making it in, in, in San Francisco, in, in, as far as like an immigrant Chinese um, is actually moving out of Chinatown. Right. And like mm-hmm. having a house that's like in the sunset or the Richmond and, and then having their own mom and pop business in those neighborhoods. And that's happened in a lot of like, I mean, talk about Vancouver. I mean, the Chinatown there is, is not nearly as, as, as vibrant as Richmond, um, as far as food, mm-hmm. you know, and 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 so you you look at some of these these neighborhoods like Chinatown, like the, the actual neighborhood, and that's that's what motivated me to come back to Chinatown, though, too, is that just the historic reference of Chinatown, even though San Francisco Chinatown is still a place where there is a lot of intake of um, of new immigrants. Um, uh, a lot of a lot of what they're what what they're really trying to do is actually move out. Um, mm-hmm. That's right. I think it's not it's it's the first stop. It <laughs> it's is. a gold mountain, uh-huh. you know. Yeah. You know, Christina and Brandon just mentioned something about you know the the Richmond and and kind of the intermingling of you know not just these deeply Chinese places and 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 foods, but with the the communities that exist there already and the things that are around them and you know much of the cooking at Mister Jews involves taking kind of ingredients that are not necessarily the original, but what is better and, and more readily available. This is an important aspect of, I think that not just that this isn't a Chinese experience. It's a Chinese American one. And, you know, my, my, my mother opened a Mexican restaurant with a chef in Boyle Heights who learned to make pastrami from the local Jewish community. So these like these interminglings happen. Tianlin, you know, a lot of, a lot of the, the cookbook has to do with not just with, the the restaurant but with chinatowns more broadly and these kind of intermingling of things can you point to any of these other sort of examples of of kind of mingling between chinese flavors and culture with you know what what is local and and there to kind of create something new oh there's so many examples i mean and we're so used to them now because we that's what we think of as chinese American food, um, you know, just finding the right substitutes for sweet and sour flavors, for example, comes to mind. Brandon has a bunch of recipes that use both a mix of what's local here and what would make sense here. And, you know, hearkening back to like ha is a kind of fruit and grows in China and it leaves kind of an orangey color naturally. And that's why we have like bright orange, sweet, sour chicken now and sweet and sour pork. But over here, we, we didn't have that. It, it would come dried sometimes, you know, by boat, by a long way over here. It took many, many months. So um, the, some of the early adaptations here in San Francisco, Chinatown, were to use, you know, the local citrus that we had here and use it fresh rather than fermented, which is how it would have been back home. Um, and, and then eventually, you know, that expectation of that brightness, that bright orangeness, God, it, you couldn't have that unless you had these other ingredients that came from China. So started adapting using ketchup and um, maybe even a little bit of food coloring because, you know, Dayglo food kind of appealed in, <laughs> into Americans. So like, that's one example that pops out, but then there are also just some really fun ad- adaptations that you'll find in the middle of like St. Louis, Missouri with, 
an egg foo young sandwich on white bread or um, other sorts of just fun combinations that just make sense to the people there because why not? That's delicious sandwich. Have you had that, um, Chris? <laughs> have you had the St. Paul sandwich? I've never it's- had it. I don't, it just it, it appeals to me on the multiple starch level. <laughs> I mean, it's it's certainly something I'm sure I would enjoy. Have you had it? How is no, it? No, I have not. I've, I'm like I, I really want to go and just have it. <laughs> what kind of bread is it? I, I don't I don't even know. It's I've only bread. seen pictures. You know, very white. It, it looks like yeah, it's just like white bread <laughs> okay. and um. Yeah, the St. Paul sandwich is an egg foo young sandwich on white bread. But the point of the egg foo young, I mean, it makes sense. It's it's egg foo young. You get it on white bread. It's toasted. But then you might have it like a BLT. So it's like you know, mixed in with different things that just make sense on a sandwich. It's not just on its own. It's, it just, you know, it's just like what you think someone was like, Hey, I can make egg foo young for breakfast. People seem to want that a lot with like the, the brown gravy. And I might also just stick it with everything else I have here at the diner. You know, that's yeah, something it, it, that like, Chris, like when, when we talk about nostalgia and, and like Americans, what they, what they have as far as nostalgia for Chinese food, that that's the layer that I didn't expect to mm-hmm. really try to really grasp. Um, and, and that part has been really interesting to like, when you cook, you know, day in and day out and you, you kind of like see what resonates with people it, it, actually understanding people's nostalgia for their own experience with Chinese food is, is so varied. It's like kind of really interesting to me. Yeah. I think, I think that that's gotta be an an interesting challenge to sort of both play with and overcome, right. People's expectations of, of what Chinese food, both, both like Chinese Americans and non-Chinese Americans, right. Because everybody's experience is super traditional Chinese too. Exactly. And, And based on even more specific based on everybody's individual home, because Every you know some of these innovations that that Tianlin is talking about, these things didn't necessarily happen in restaurants. A lot of this was family kitchens trying to recreate what they knew with what they have. I I was mm-hmm. just at home with my parents this past weekend, and my my dad makes uh, like tongyo bing, like uh, green scallion pancakes out of tortillas and like flour tortillas and eggs. And this weekend he had some new concoction where he took like King's Hawaiian rolls and just uh, stuffed them all with uh, roast pork chashu. Mm-hmm. To kind of emulate the baked uh, chashu bao. I'm sure, Christina, you're you're rolling your eyes at this. No, that sounds amazing. <laughs> that that sounds that. right. Yeah. But but so much of this happened at homes. So can you guys talk a little bit? You know, of I mean, especially you, Christina and Tianlun, like away from maybe these. You know, Brandon grew up with the, with San Francisco Chinatown at his doorstep. You know, what was the cooking like in your in your home kitchens and your your grandparents' kitchens in this in these kind of like smaller Chinese enclaves? I would say that. First of all, the cooking was sort of constant because my grandparents owned a Chinese restaurant. So they were cooking at the restaurant. They were cooking at home. And my mom was always cooking uh, for my family after after she got off from work. She was like the type of mom that we didn't really go out for dinner too much unless it was to the family restaurant, which wasn't really like going out at all. So there was a lot of cooking. Um, I would say that my mom kind of took on a lot of like Asian American ideals in terms of like her cooking. Cause she was like eight years old when she moved to the sixties. Mm-hmm. And so, um, I remember like the meals I ate primarily in the nineties, including a lot of ketchup and oyster sauce. Like that was like her flavor power couple that she put in everything. Uh, and 
um, I call it mom spaghetti, but like she, it was like ground beef with oyster sauce and ketchup and like just spaghetti noodles. And like, I just thought that this is like what like spaghetti was for the longest time until I went to someone else's house and they like actually had tomatoes, like real tomatoes in it. <laughs> um, so, um, I feel like I had this like side of like that type of style food of my mom, just trying to like figure things out and combine like very American ingredients with like the Chinese food that she knew. You've right. had tomato beef chow mein though. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah it's like, it's the same oh thing. It's so good. <laughs> it's the same so thing. Good. Yeah. So it's like finding those like weird connections, like later on when you like try, I don't know, like the actual thing and comparing it with like some like amalgamation that your mom made in Ohio, like back in the nineties. Tianlin, did you grow up with this? What did you grow oh, up with? Oh yeah. I mean, all of this is familiar to me. Although the, what, what, how we used ketchup in our family anyway, it was ketchup on uh, to barbecue chicken. So it was ketchup with soy sauce. We'd be at like on the July 4th picnic with like our, our everything like set out with our ketchup and soy sauce bottles, making our, our, our ketchup chicken. And um, everyone was like, that's an amazing barbecue sauce. And at the time in Ohio and Columbus, it was not a thing to like use soy sauce and everything. I want to talk a little bit about learning to cook Chinese food. You know, we've talked a lot about sort of the food we grew up with and, and both in, in Chinatowns and in kitchens, our home kitchens. But, you know, Christina, you talk about your early days kind of searching for recipes for these baked goods that you couldn't, you know, that you would had in, in bakeries and, and cafes, but couldn't find recipes for, um, you know. <laughs> it's amazing to me that that your two cookbooks exist because these resources, <laughs> the idea that there's a book about specifically about Chinese baked goods and, and, and about a restaurant, you know, pushing Chinatown forward is a completely foreign concept 20 years ago, 15 years ago. And so what what was it like kind of diving in and, and, and learning these recipes for things that you had eaten, but never cooked before? Because I feel like whether it's baked goods or noodles or dumplings or any sort of like intensive handcrafted Chinese or, you know, Asian specialty, there's so many kind of different peculiarities and techniques and ingredients that are unfamiliar to Western bakers. So what was it like learning to make these things? I would say that I'm sort of surprised. It took me so long to get the idea. I'm like, oh, I can make a pineapple bun or bolo bao by myself. I think growing up, especially with bakeries, it just feels like that thing that you only leave to the professionals and you save it as a special trip to go fill up a pink box of buns and egg tarts and things like that. Um, like I really didn't have the idea that I can make all of this stuff myself until like maybe like six or seven years ago. Um, I, I actually got my, I guess like my, I call it my independence in the kitchen through baking um, when I was like a teenager, because it was like the only time I could be left alone in the kitchen. Like if I decided that I wanted to like make my mom's spring rolls and I would have like five people in there like telling me their like own opinions about how to make it better. <laughs> you know, like everyone, right. everyone has an idea, has their ideals for a lot of Chinese, like savory Chinese cooking, at least in my family. Um, but I was like, I want to make chocolate chip cookies. And it's like crickets. Like no one's ever, ever made a chocolate chip cookie before. So I was like, yes, like I can be by myself. And so I, I kind of first taught myself how to do more like Western or European style baking one, because that's, that's what I had access to in terms of like books and TV and media, you know, like I, I kind of grew up watching a lot of food networks. So you kind of see a lot of that stuff constantly on TV mm -hmm. and it felt like very attainable to make brownies and things like that. Um, and I felt like when I started to kind of focus more on Chinese baking, there is a lot of crossover, you know, like Chinese baking does have kind of Europe European roots from Hong Kong and like the European influence that it has there. So like 
the base milk bread, very similar to like brioche or challah in terms of like any type of enriched bread. Um, so I felt like it was a very easy transition to go into it. But then what got hard for me was I think pinpointing like the very, there's like very nuanced, I guess, textures and flavors that a lot of people really hang on to in terms of their baked goods, because people are really passionate about like the style of egg tart they want or the shattery texture on top of their pineapple bun, because there's so many different variations. And so I think the struggle for me was just kind of like deciding what I wanted to represent in terms of this book, because for a lot of people, it was the first time they would see um, like a type of bun or pastry represented. So I wanted to give it like the best version that I could. Was it also a challenge? I mean, I can imagine that like, you know, when you go into a, a Chinese bakery, you're getting the kind of production level, you know, perfectly mm-hmm. created with whatever dough relaxers and, and all kinds of things that like make it possible to to churn out, you know, 2,500 egg tarts in a day or, or yeah. whatever. And, and people's ex- experience for the most part is with the bakery version of this good and not necessarily any kind of like home-baked version is there was there a challenge in kind of adjust adopt, adapting from you know what they do in the chinese bakery to what is achievable at home and, and sort of recognizable at home yeah absolutely um i felt like i had this like fear because like asian people are so critical <laughs> like about their food <laughs> you know like saying like oh this is pretty good is like what i was going for um but i felt like yeah like in bakeries one scale is so big you know, and I wanted everything to be really manageable for just one person making within a day, you know, instead of making like a hundred egg tarts, the recipe is just for 12, like a very manageable amount or like one loaf of bread. So thinking about scaling that back and realizing that like a lot of these doughs do have like stabilizers or things that keep them really fresh for like longer than three days. I had to realize that like a lot of people, a lot of these people are going to be eating it like fresh. And I think that's where I was like, there's really even a homemade egg tart. Like when you eat it fresh out of the oven, once you let it cool down for like 30 minutes is better than any egg tart that you can get at like mm-hmm. a bakery, just because like you're right there, you made it and you feel really proud of yourself. So I was like, I'm just going to hold on to that, to that emotion for people and when they, <laughs> when they bake. Yeah. Fresh, fresh is better than perfect. Mm-hmm. Brandon, there was sort of a, a kind of pivotal moment. You know, you would be, like I said, you've been cooking in, in the Bay Area's best restaurants with sort of the the best chefs there are. You had this kind of sterling pedigree, but there was this this moment when you decided you needed to study Chinese cooking. Can you talk about that? Yeah. You know, around that time I was cooking at Quince and, you know, I had gone through a fair amount of Italian Mediterranean training and, you know, with, with cooking, you, you learn about cuisine of a certain time and place of those people. And, and by cooking, you're, you're paying homage to those people. And I think, um, learning more and more about Italian cuisine, like I, I have, I, and I still do have a lot of pride for what, what I've learned, um, of Italian cuisine and, and the people of Italy. So in my time even spent in Italy, but, um, I also had to, and I had this realization of that, like, how much do I know of, of my cuisine, of, of, of my family's cuisine. And at the same time, around that time, uh, my grandma was, she, she passed away very quickly of cancer and, and she passed away like so fast in my, like that I couldn't even like have the kind of conversations about the recipes that, that I, I wanted to be able just to pass down within my own family. And, and I think that made me feel like, okay, 
this is like, I'm a chef and I can't even pass down my family's recipes to my own family. Like, this is mm -hmm. like messed up. So that like propelled me to move to Shanghai and to dedicate the rest of my career to learning Chinese cuisine. I mean, the cuisine is, is, is so layered and it's, it, it is, you know, part of, I think our books being out there is, is, is like the transparency of um, recipes and, and, and understanding the, the really like the complexities of the cuisine uh, is not as available as, as it was to, um, to our generation. Um, and, and I think going on a discovery of understanding more about the cuisine and, and, um, and then wanting to actually have something out there like our books to be able to give our observations, you know, and give our, our learnings out there. I think that I, I, I've, I've talked to other chefs that, that, that I'm hopeful that they write their own books too. So, you know, Jow at you you know, we've had conversations. I'm, I'm looking forward <laughs> to your book, Victor Leung at, at Liho Fook. Um, I, I just was, you know, in Melbourne hanging out with him and it's like, uh, this next generation of Chinese cooks. Um, I think it's important that books are, are written and, and information is shared. Like, this is why like Bruce Lee, taught other people other than Chinese people martial arts, because, uh, you know, in a way, like this is actually the way to like have people understand us more and also respect our cuisine more is by understanding how intricate and how difficult the cuisine is um, making a really beautiful pineapple bun that has all those characteristics of it you know, holding together, but then shattering when you bite into it and staying, you know, really crunchy on top, but then really pillowy underneath. Like these are things that like, this is, this is not like a simple thing to, to be able to, to, to achieve and understanding that and, and actually having people make them to understand how difficult it is to make a good one. I think that that is also some of what I think this is a long overdue respect for the cuisine you know, Brandon, you, you talked about, you know, your, your grandmother's passing as kind of the, the moment where you decided to kind of shift your priorities to understanding your own family's culinary heritage and, and, you know, the broader Chinese uh, American culinary heritage, Christina, you, you were a trained architect and, uh, decided that you were getting more satisfaction out of baking and sharing your, your baking than you were from, you know, your day-to-day -day job of working with engineers and everything. So you, you both had these moments where your own, value in own value system changed around what you wanted to, to work with. But what I'm wondering for all three of you is, was there also this moment where you saw something that you grew up with that I assume was kind of a little bit of an outsider's perspective as, as Asian Americans, you know, like the food you ate, the, the way you grew up was different. Christina talked about, you know, going to a friend's house and seeing spaghetti with actual tomatoes for the first time. Was there a moment for you all in the last 10, 15, however many years where you saw other people's view of your experience changing? Did you have a moment where you suddenly saw value in something that, you know, I was personally embarrassed of growing up? I think that happens all the time, you know, um, just an appreciation of all these things I took for granted. But um, you, you said in the past recent, yeah, like the past five years, my daughter was born, for example. And this is like, a, this was a major moment in my life, obviously, but one of the things that was 
new to me was an appreciation for the medicinal foods that I was fed when I was after I was like recovering. And they, they were all these comforting flavors of herbs and things that I associated with like, you know, healing. And my, I was like, I've written about this. So, um, you know, I've thought about this a lot. My, my father did this postpartum month, the Zoyedza for me and my mother helped too. And just like having all these really traditional things fed to me and, and, and feeling them work for on, on a really psychological level and not just um, physical level was really, uh, it was magical. I mean, called it the foot, month right? of magical eating. <laughs> yeah. I mean, pig it's, feet. it was more than just pig's feet. I mean, it, just, Rooster, it was just the order of frog. things. What yeah. else? I want to know. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I can tell you. I mean, I, you know, like by the second month when you're like recovered and you're just trying to like more recovered, for example, my, my cousin who's uh Cantonese, she started like making me this um, uh, toasted, this dried squid that was to, that she would toast and roast and then make into a soup um, mm. with peanuts. I, just like really interesting combinations that don't really make sense until you're eating them and you need them, you know? It's so, the restorative part of. Yeah, there's the a very, I mean, we write, it's a little bit in this book, in the book, in Brandon's book, but, you know, and Brandon follows his philosophy because he's very aware and, and conscious of like the healing properties of foods and he believes very strongly in them. I mean, that's like a very fundamental part of Chinese cooking. And sometimes I took it for granted because, you know, my parents would say, we all know this, like we've heard these terms, right? Like shanghua or, or you're eating too many things that like put too much heat into your body and that's why you're getting sick. Or, um, and, and you get tired of hearing that when you're a little kid, you're like, now you need to eat this very cooling pear. <laughs> you're like, sure, whatever. I'll eat the pear. Cause it's delicious. Like, oh, like your, your, your fire. chi is high. Yeah. That's right. There. Yeah. We've like, all been there. You're breaking out from like canker sores to acne uh -huh. to just like back aches. That's right. On with the temperature of the food. So but, that was um, one thing that really changed for me was like having it work in a way that really was very emotional. And I think that's actually the whole point um, of, of the healing months for women anyway, after having babies and mm -hmm. going the Chinese way. Um, you know, Brandon, I remember, <laughs> I remember our mutual friend, Danny and I were cooking at, at a rest, a Chinese restaurant in the mission at mission Chinese food. And you were cooking at, at bar agricole, you were doing Italian food. And I remember just looking at you and watching you cook and thinking like, why isn't this guy making Chinese food? Like, why, why are we doing it? And, and was there an element of what I'm talking about where like, I don't yeah, know, did you, no, as, I mean, as somebody who's cooked for a long time, were you, did you see like a, a change in people's attitudes toward Chinese food? Like, obviously like, you came up doing California Mediterranean because that was what was like, that was what was good. Right. And like Chinese food was not considered good. Yeah. I, I mean, so, you know, just, Danny, you know, he, he was someone that like, I think we, we, we both like help give a reference to the Chinese food that we were nostalgic for and the things that we, we grew up eating or like the restaurants that we loved and, you know, kind of helping him kind of find his footing in, in the cuisine. Um, it was, you know, this is, this is something like, as far as like a chef trajectory that, that I'm, you know, this is also, what I've, you know, wanted to fight for in a way is, is, is like to have my own restaurant, right? Like as a chef, you often get hired to cook a cuisine that is maybe not in your heart's content. Like, you know, it's, you're, you're a hired gun. Like you're like, Hey, I want to open a California 
kind of style restaurant. Um, you know, and that's how I got the our agricole position. And you know, moving yourself up into the opportunity to become a chef often in in really at least America or you know, I, I think in in the era that I came up in, it's like you had to cook in a European style sense. Like there, there was not like, you know, someone looking to open a California cuisine restaurant that was looking for a Chinese chef, really, you know, like mm -hmm. for, for him, for me, for me to like cook the food that I wanted to cook necessarily. So, and I told this to Thad, the owner, um, you know, when I got hired that my heart is in Chinese cuisine and, and, and the only thing that I could really give him is that, I could cook California cuisine with the notion that it, it would be really ingredient driven. And, but, but like that became very shallow to me after a while. And mm -hmm. I knew that I, that's what the point that I knew I had to leave and pursue my own restaurant. And, and that I had, I felt like I had this, this one chance, you know, you know, I had accumulated the amount of experience and with, with, you know, understanding how to manage a kitchen. Um, I had like at least built up some sort of, of my name in, in some context. And, and that this was like my one chance to then like be off on my own to cook the cuisine that I wanted to cook. Because up until that point, I was cooking in a concept that, you know, basically had led me in a, California Mediterranean sense to, to become a chef. And I, and I think, um, my hope and I, I mean, I already see it now, which is, which is awesome. Is like, there, there's so much more available now, as far as like Asian chefs that are being able to cook the food that they want to cook like quicker, you know, faster and, and actually be out in, in the forefront in, in a way that I, I don't think was really as available before. And so even in our cluster of cookbooks um, that have come out, you know, Hetty's and, and, and Betty and, and like all, like, it's actually really, it's like this groundswell of even just our books coming out at around the same time that it was very exciting in, in a it way. It felt a little bit like a critical mass, you know, I'm like, yeah. yes, finally, there's, I'm in a collection. I'm not the only one that's trying to say something different. But then the pandemic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, so, I mean, Christina, when you were, when you were sort of just starting out and, and bringing baked goods into work and, and just starting your blog, were you surprised by people's response to, you know, specifically the, these baked goods, these, these things that you grew up with, maybe that, which maybe you didn't know that there was such an audience for? Um, I think in general, um, a lot of the baked goods are pretty palatable for people who might not be used to like a Chinese style, like sponge cake with fruit or like different buns and stuff like that. I think the only thing that I ever saw kind of like a surprise reaction to would maybe be for like moon cakes. Um, mm -hmm. cause it's, it's really hard to describe to people like what a moon cake is like if they've never had one before and i'm like it's the it's coolest name for a dessert and <laughs> i don't i don't i mean i know your book is named after them it, it's it's challenging it's, it's challenging yeah the savory ones Ooh, coolest coolest name for a dessert though but, i know uh, i think a lot of people are like moon cakes like that sounds so magical and then they, <laughs> they like, have, and it's a lot and, of paste 
Yeah, it's a lot of face. I, I described to people like I, I think it was the last time I worked at an office. Like, I used to work as a designer, and so I brought in like a bunch of mooncakes from my bakery or from Clement Street, and I brought in like the ham and mixed nut one and all the like, like white lotus and all the classic ones and stuff like that. And they're like, oh, so like how would you describe it? I'm like, it's like kind of like a really really thick fig newton but instead of figs it there's is. beans inside <laughs> and it's and sweet sometimes an egg. And, and sometimes an egg but i really love them and like you should only eat a wedge <laughs> like, you, right. like, like don't eat the entire thing um and so i think i got some like mixed reactions from people when i brought them in um but I, that still doesn't change the way I feel about them. Like I still really love them and maybe I have my own favorite flavors compared to others. I love that. I love that that your recommendation for how to eat a moon cake is the same recommendation people give about marijuana (laughs) edibles. Yeah. Don't eat the whole thing. Yeah. Only an eighth. Just eat an eighth of this moon cake and then see how you feel. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) So like I said, I'm, I'm so excited that I, I, it's, it's a marvel to me that, these two books exist that, that the three of you are out there kind of <laughs> doing what you're doing and, and something to me that was just unimaginable growing up. And the, the, the release of these two books of, of Mooncakes and Milk Bread and Mr. Jews in Chinatown were, were seriously <laughs> two uh, extremely happy and, and proud moments for me just as a, as a fan and, and somebody looking in from the outside. I'm extremely excited to see this and, and I continue to, to root for you all and, and to follow you very closely and uh it's been a real pleasure today that was chris ying in conversation with christina cho author of mooncakes and milk bread and brandon jew and tianlin ho authors of mr jews in chinatown this has been literary arts the archive project it's a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers for more than 35 years of literary arts in portland the archive project is produced in collaboration with oregon public broadcasting to hear more, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Our executive producer is Andrew Proctor. The show is produced by Crystal Ligori and Donald Orr for Radio and Podcast, with oversight by Amanda Bullock and support from Liz Olofsson and Alberto Swim. Special thanks to literary arts marketing staff Joti Roy and Hope Levy and the entire literary arts staff, board, and community. This show would not be possible without them. Thanks also to the band Emancipator for our theme music, and thanks to all of you for listening. I'm Amanda Bullock, in for Andrew Proctor, and this has been another episode of the Archive Project from Literary Arts. Join us next time and find your story here.